0: Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor Podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today I'm delighted to have Colin Shaw as my guest. He's a global influencer. He's been recognized by the Financial Times for the last two years as one of the world's best management consultancies. He's the author of seven best-selling books on customer-driven growth, and he also hosts the Intuitive Customer Podcast on his website. So Colin, would you mind giving a quick 90-second rundown on your journey to get to where you are before we get stuck into the detail?
1: Yep. So, spent most of my life in corporate life, wound my way to the up the greasy pole, decided back in 2002 that I thought that customer experience was going to be a big topic for businesses. Back then, people didn't really know anything about it. Wrote my first book on the subject... Back in 2002, it was literally one of the first books globally that was around customer experience and how to improve it. Since then, that was sort of working out my bedroom. Since then, we've moved into being a global consultancy, primarily based in the UK and the US. We've worked for organisations like uh, FedEx, uh, Merck Line, American Express. And we focus on helping organizations improve their customer experience to drive value. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a really interesting journey. And um, during lockdown, it's been interesting because we actually haven't changed really the way we work. We've always tended to work remotely. And my financial director always says to me, if the team are in the office, then they're not making money. Yeah, we've um, spent a lot of time talking and advising with our clients.
0: It was interesting. I had a conversation with Daniel Marcos from the Growth Institute a couple of weeks back. And uh, he said that they had to pivot into virtual and their client base has increased eightfold under lockdown. So I see this as actually a very good thing, which we'll discuss in a minute. I am curious, why Beyond Philosophy as a company name? That's uh, an interesting.
1: Because I was sick and tired of consultants. when I, I used to work for British Telecom. And I was sick and tired of people coming into my office, consultants coming into my office and telling me about strategy. But when you then said, well, how do we go about doing that? They wouldn't <laughs> tell you. Okay? So I'm trying to indicate that you've got to have a strategy and a philosophy, but you've got to go beyond it and do something. So strategy is great. And you know, we do a lot of strategy work, but it's got to be practical. You just don't, can't just talk about something, you've got to do something.
0: Okay. Well, let's get stuck into the meat and gristle of all of this. You talk about customer-driven growth, Mm -hmm. but presumably to do that, you have to address culture and uh, have people really buy into that whole philosophy that you put the customer front and center, you exist because of the customer. When you go into an organization, how much resistance is there from people who spent most of the time thinking about the customer rather than thinking as the customer?
1: So most organizations are what I would call transactional. And this was actually the second book I wrote on customer centricity. So what you find is particularly a lot of the large legacy organizations are very transactional. They tend to treat the customer as if they're something to process. Okay, whereas the the newer organizations, I mean, if you just took Amazon as a prime example, Jeff Bezos has said that he wants uh, Amazon to be the most customer-centric company in the world. Again, I saw another quote from him the other day, which basically said that he doesn't look at his competition, he looks at what his customers are doing. So there's a real trend in, again, if you think about any of the sort of startups that are around is if you get that customer culture in the organization early enough and you focus on that customer, then you start to gain ground on all of the other people that are out there because they're not customer focused.
0: So what process do you have to go through to unpick that transactional culture and turn them into a customer centric one? I'm aware your
1: podcast is, is looking not just at sort of, Organizations that are there, but grow, growing organizations. So the first thing I would do if I was in a in a in a growth situation is, and started an organization off, I'd make sure I'm building that culture from day one. Okay, going into an organization that have has effectively got, and and now when I say an organization, you know, just think of cable companies, just think of mobile phone companies. The majority of organizations are not customer focused. Okay. So what you need to do to unpick it is effectively a couple of things. First of all, one of the interesting things is that when you go into an organization and you ask them a simple question, which is what's the experience that you're trying to deliver to your customers? Most people cannot articulate (laughs) what the experience is that they're trying to deliver. Okay? Right. And I would ask your audience to think about what, their experiences they're trying to deliver, and then ask other people in that organization, your own organization, what you're trying to do. And what you'll find is there's no defined experience. And therefore, that means that what happens is because there's no defined experience, marketing do what they think is the right thing, customer service do what they think is the right thing, field engineers do what they think is the right thing, and everybody does something slightly different. And therefore, you get... By channel, you get a different feeling of what that experience is like. So, first thing is, is, you've, and this applies whether you're new or new or old organization. First thing is, you've got to define what that experience is. Now, the experience that you deliver to your customer should drive value. Okay. So, right. there's no point in delivering an experience to customers if they don't value it and if they will not spend more money with you, yeah? So therefore, by definition, you've got to start off by doing some research to identify what things drive value to be able for you to turn around and say, okay, so therefore, we're going to define that this is the experience that we're trying to deliver, and because we're now delivering this experience, we've now defined that strategically, going back to our company name, Beyond Philosophy, Now, what do we physically have to do because of that? So how do we evoke those emotions? How do we... um, So let me give you an example. Maersk Line, the largest container shipping company in the world, worked with us. This was all validated by Forrester. And they improved their net promoter score, which is a way of measuring customer satisfaction, by 40 points over a 30-month period. And that led to a 10% rise in shipping volumes. And what we defined with them was that they wanted their customers to trust them, they wanted them to feel cared for, and they wanted to feel pleased. So that was like the strategy. We knew those things drove value. And therefore, now you're into going, well, how do we make our customers feel that they can trust us? How do they make them feel they can feel cared for? How do we make them feel pleased? And that's then the the implementation of those things. Does that make sense?
0: It does. On the surface, that sounds painfully obvious and extremely simple that from the customer's perspective. But my guess is that it's a lot more complex than that. What are the hoops that you have to jump through, both in terms of dealing with policy, which generally is tells people what not to do, and culture, which tells them what to do, and that the disconnect? How do you manage to ensure that all parties are involved? Because you're talking about a very complex organization with a huge supply chain and lots of moving parts. How do you make sure that they're all coordinated and they deliver those three critical value points? So the first
1: thing is, is you have to engage all those different parts of the organization, and you have to engage them at the senior level. So typically, when we do this with organisations, we're dealing with the board, okay? Because it's not something that you can just implement within your part of the organisation. You get the board involved. One of the key critical parts, and and we learned, you know, I say we started off in 2002. First three years, we were effectively saying to organisations. Yeah, this is a really good idea. You should do this. And rightly so, they were saying, Yeah, I can understand that, but show me the money. Uh, you know, prove to me that this works. So, what we learned from that was that you have to, to show them the money. You have to effectively do the research and put the science behind understanding what the customer is, it wants to feel what that experience should look like to be able to turn around and say, okay, look, here's the numbers. If we make our customers trust us, then that will produce X amount of revenue from that. And therefore, these are the things we need to do. You have to get the, that team to buy into it. And then it is a long process of changing the organization because you're right, you know, there's a lot of things that you have to change. It's not just about what that experience is but you then need to start to think about the policies that you've mentioned so when you start to think about it you know a lot of the policies of, of an organization can cause mistrust I mean just think about going into a hotel you put the bag on your bed you open up the you open up the cupboard to hang your clothes up and the first thing is you're confronted with those little, Coat hangers that are stuck on those little bloody things that all <laughs> your clothes fall off. Yeah. But what do they tell you? Those things say to you, We do not trust you as a customer. You go into a bank and they put pens on chains, which says, We think you're going to nick our pens. And then you start taking a step back and you go, The mentality of those types of organizations is the customer is trying to defraud us in some way rather than maybe 1% or 2% of customers are. But you know what? That's actually, we're, we're now imposing that poor experience on the 98% of people that, that aren't. So to answer your question, Marcus, it's, it is complicated. It's multifaceted across the organization. It, you have to think about now, if you're in marketing, well, how do we start to market our services where we can make our customers feel that they trust us and feel cared for? And you have to go into the detail of those things.
0: Well, this then brings me to another one of my big bugbears, which is just how atrocious so much marketing is out there. Mm -hmm. Because it's selfish, it's self-centered, it's about us making us the hero, and it doesn't enter into the customer's world in any way, shape, or form. Sure. Bluntly, I think probably 80%, 90% of marketing budgets would be better spent on lottery tickets. <laughs> and you'd probably get a better return, certainly premium sure. ones. So my question is this then, how do you get the customer's story? Because I think what you've described there is really about going out and speaking to customers, finding out what they love, what they hate, and making sure that you understand why they buy and what, pre- what you do to prevent them from buying. Would that be fair?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's a few things that are key, okay? So once you've defined what the experience is that you're trying to deliver, clearly what you should then be doing is measuring that. And what you should then be doing is making sure that people's remuneration is tied to that. Okay, so that's like a good lever yes. to implement those things. If you go to your point about marketing and understanding the customer, this is again where it starts to get very interesting because if you think about what's happening today, what's happening today is that customers' emotions and customer behavior or just human being. Emotions, as human being, promote behavior, is very much in the fore as we're in the middle of this pandemic. Okay, what most organisations look at is they look at customers from what we would call a rational perspective. Mm. So they're looking at they assume that the customer is making a logical decision, and they are looking at what the customer's doing. Okay, and that's clearly part of it. Okay, so you know, conversations that I have many times is that price is the most important thing. Well, no, it's not. It rarely ever is. Correct. But that's the mentality. So, you know, let's do this offer, let's do that offer, let's do this wonderful lease on this, whatever it may be. So you've got the rational part of a customer experience, but what the organization and marketeers particularly who in my mind should be leading this type, of, uh, this type of initiative, they're not looking at customer emotions other than the brand part of an organization, they, they would. But they're not then looking at, if you again, if you think about behavior and customer behavior and getting to understand what customers are doing, that means that you need to sort of start to drill down into more of the psychology of why people do things, yeah. Okay, and what we discover is that we human beings are not rational.
0: God we no. are not
1: logical. For
0: anything but. The Correct. only people who think that are economists, and they were put on the planet to make soothsayers look good.
1: <laughs> but I have to say, I think that too many marketeers still think that customers are logical. Well, is and that, if we is have
0: that, this, it, sorry on. to interrupt. Is that because? They're using personas. And because of that, they're blinkered, and that all they see is Dave is a middle management executive operating in a shipping line. And this, you know, he's 37 years old, sure. um, with two kids. And as a result of that, they lack the imagination. I think Mark Twain said it really well. Basically, paraphrasing, you won't think straight if your imagination is out of focus. And I think, to a large extent, their imagination is out of focus because they've got preconceived ideas and they don't go in with that child mind. Yeah, so good point.
1: Have you ever heard of confirmation bias? Oh, God, yes. Okay. <laughs> so, so for your listeners that may not have heard, confirmation bias is that basically says that what we do is that when we look at the world, we want to confirm our views of things. So if you think of politics, if you think of Sport or whatever it may be, you look at things to confirm your view of the world. Okay. And therefore, what I think you're describing there is part of that. Okay. So, first of all, the culture, going back to your original point, of the organization constrains people. The measures constrain people. And, you know, who gets promoted? Well, it's guess what? It's the guys that are doing all the things that their bosses think are the right thing. And they're the old, let me call it the old fashioned way of looking at things. So I'm not against personas. What I'm against is absolutely that more lateral thinking. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about all the time on the podcast is looking at how customers make choices. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they, what, what organizations do not do is they do not look into customer behavior in enough depth, okay? They don't understand why customers make decisions at the detailed level of that they need to. You can then create a persona on top of that if you've, if you've understood that detailed level, but they don't go into it enough.
0: Well, this then raises another question. I, I uh, run a podcast around story, permission, decision-making with three of my partners who are all consummate storytellers. And one of the conclusions that we've come to is that the middle chunk of your customers can't really articulate why they buy and why they don't buy. And the the advice that they gave, so this is Paul Alexandru, who took Kahoot, which is only a couple of million-dollar turnover business, but they have now over a billion users worldwide because they yep. put the customer front and center and they had them spread the word. Martin uh, Lucas, who runs Gap in the Matrix, and he specialized, he's a mathematical psychologist. It's right. a really fascinating field. Sure. And uh, Alex Mosko, who's a consummate storyteller. And their advice is that you need to go to the extremes of your customer base. The people who love you, the raving fans, because they can tell you why they buy and sure. what they don't like. And they will tell you frankly. And also the people who hate you and have dumped you. But that takes an enormous amount of courage to go and speak to people who are just basically slagging you off in the market or who fired you recently. And you have to be ready uh, to take that criticism on board. And just to bring this all together, uh, one of the other things that I think frustrates a lot of customers is they give feedback and then you never hear what uh, has been done with it. So two points to pull from this. One is I think that you need to go and speak to your customers. And I think senior executives need to speak to the customers so that they're not living in their bubble. And The other piece is that you have to communicate what you've done as a result of this feedback, because otherwise people will just run out of any motivation to give you the answers. So in terms of what you guys have been doing to go out and get the story, what are you advising your clients to do? Are you doing it yourselves?
1: Well, the answer to that is both, okay? So an interesting question just from a cultural perspective is to ask yourself, how much time do you spend with customers? Or moreover, how much time do senior managers spend with customers? Absolutely. Because, you know, I love the phrase, you are your diary or your schedule. Yeah. Yeah. So just look at your calendar and go, that's what I do. That's what I think is important because that's what I'm allocating my time against. The important point that you've raised there is, A, storytelling is absolutely a must but what you've got to do is you've got to get under the skin of things. So let me tell you a brief story. Disney know when they ask their customers what they want to eat at a theme park, Disney know that people say they'd like to have an option of a salad. <clears throat> Disney also know that people no don't eat salads <laughs> when they're going to see theme parks. Yeah. So the point I'm trying to make is there is a big difference between what customers tell you and what they do this is where I find this ironic because I, I harp on about and wrote, book on, uh, wrote a book on customer centricity and then on the other side of it, I'm going, actually, you have to be careful what customers tell you. So the point I'm trying to make is that what you've got to do is you've certainly got to ask customers and what we would do with any of our clients is you ask, you interview the customers, but you can't just take their first answer. Absolutely. Okay?
0: And
1: you've got to, drill down underneath that. So again, let me give you another example of it. So we do a piece of research which we call an emotional signature, which effectively gets under the skin of what the demonstrating what customers say and do. So we walked into this hospital system in America and the perceived wisdom from all the feedback that they'd been getting from customers was that patients wanted to spend more time with doctors. Okay, so it sounds reasonable. You you see yourself that, you know, that would be the case. So patients wanted to spend more time with doctors and they were just about to spend a load of money on increasing the amount of doctors they had to increase the amount of time that they had and blah, 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 blah. When we did this piece of research, what we discovered was that it wasn't that the patients wanted to spend more time with doctors. What it was was that patients wanted the doctors to listen to them. That was the thing that drove value. And again, I go back to that word value. So, growth, improvements of customer satisfaction, loyalty. They wanted doctors to listen to them. Okay. Now, so here's the irony you could have doubled the amount of time that the doctors spent talking to the patient at a great cost, and they would have still been unsatisfied and probably more unsatisfied because you double the amount of time, they still don't bloody listen to you. Yeah. <laughs> But when you go into, well, it's because of the doctors aren't listening to them, now you can get into things like, well, maybe we need to train the doctors, maybe it's about making eye contact with the, do- with the patient, maybe it's about you know using techniques like repeating what the customer's saying to them so they can say that they've listened to them. And again, what you then start to see is because you're dealing with the real issue that is driving behaviour, then you start to see massive increases in growth, uh, et cetera.
0: It's really interesting that you make this point. I read a report. This must have been about 10, 15 years ago, but it's still pertinent now. When a doctor in America qualifies, the insurance company follows them around and assesses their bedside manner because yep. they know if they have a good bedside manner, they're not going to get sued. They can be top of their class. Yep. So if they don't have a good bedside Absolutely. manner, they'll be sued constantly. Yeah. And one of my mentors, Mark Golston, who is a specialist in empathic listening, has developed a, a really interesting observation, which is all human beings want to be heard, feel felt, and be understood. And yeah. that's across the human species whatever discipline you're in, people want to know that you feel what they feel. They want to feel like you've actually listened to what they've had to say and that you've understood them. Once you've got past that, then most of the barriers have disappeared and you can start working in partnership with them. And so this is uh, where I'd like to take the conversation now. How do you make sure that you are partnering with your customer so that you are both getting better as a result? Because I think what tends to happen is uh, vendors and companies have a tendency to try and do stuff to customers or do stuff for customers rather than do stuff with customers. And I look at some of the best tech companies that are growing at hundreds or thousands of percent, and the amount of time they spend partnering with their customers to develop the product, to develop the services, and they do it together. And th- these guys are doing amazing jobs. So I- I'm curious about your thoughts on that.
1: I think from a simplistic perspective, it goes back to a simple thing, which is recognizing your customers are human beings. And too many organizations don't recognize that customers are human beings. Absolutely. You know, this partnership thing. So again, this is one thing that really annoys me. And I used to get this a lot of time in corporate life. People say, we want a partnership with customers, you know, we want to form a we want to build loyal customers. what they're really saying is we want customers to give us all their business, okay so you know it's one way is the point yeah. I'm trying to make okay? partnership is two ways so therefore it's about what you want and about what the customer wants and therefore you can start to feel and I go back to that word advisorly whether someone's being genuine or not, whether someone's being authentic or not, whether someone go back to what you just said, Marcus, you know, is empathetic. Do they really understand what you're trying to get out of this? Do they really understand that at an emotional level? And I go back to what I said at the beginning, which is, and are they doing something? You know, it's not just about understanding, but are they putting themselves out? Do I get a sense that you're putting yourself out for me, that you're doing something maybe you don't want to do, but you're doing it for me because you know that I want this. And again, too many organizations don't do that. And I think now that is where we're going to, the danger is, this is where we're going to get to within the pandemic and the recession that's hitting the world, is organizations are going to retrench, okay? I saw this in the 2008 Great Recession. There are organizations who start to say, Revenue's going down, this is happening, that's happening. We can't afford to be customer-focused. We've got to retrench into what we're good at, et cetera, which is absolutely the, you know, the opposite of what you should be doing, okay? But that's the reality of life. I've seen it happen before, and I'm seeing it uh, happen already with a number of organizations.
0: I think you touched on something really critically important. Around September 2020, Most of the relief systems that governments have been putting in place will be lifted, which means that it is going to be an utter bloodbath. And only the businesses that have really refocused their attention on the customer are going to come out of this smelling of roses. And more importantly, they're going to thrive. I'm looking at these businesses now, and it's a joy to see them. But like you said, there are many that are retrenching. And the first things they cut, sales, Marketing, recruitment, training, and coaching. Yeah. Net result of that is that you end up being inward focused instead of outward focused. Yes. And the customer picks up on it and they feel that you're treating them like an ATM machine and they're just a cash generating entity and you're selfish. And when I define partnerships, partners are people who help each other get better. You work together for the better, sure. both of you. And I think to build on your point, what I've seen the best partners do is they will say, you know, Colin, I've got to be honest, I think you should go with our competition. I don't think we're right for you. Let me introduce you to people who are better suited to help you. Sure. And the best salespeople do this. And what they also recognize is that they start to see patterns of behavior in terms of when customers stop doing things or what they're not doing. Very often, the clues are in those areas. Most people are seduced by this whole thing of big data, which actually is, um, I I think, also exceptionally damaging in most cases, because they're being flooded with all this information. They have no idea how to use it. And they're missing the small data, the little things around human behavior, uh, around emotion. So what advice would you give to leaders to ensure that the changes that they're making when you operate in a system, if you change one thing, then chances are there will be unintended consequences in other parts of the system. So what advice are you giving to leaders to have those conversations and, and have their salespeople and their marketing people and their field engineers uh, have those conversations about the little things and the things that people are not doing or stopping?
1: Good question. I think the first thing is that, again, this goes down to a mindset. and. You mentioned story times before. So let me tell you a story that I think is really relevant here. I remember watching a film in the 60s or a film of in the 1960s that was of uh, a racing car, two racing car drivers, Formula One, racing around the track. And as they were racing around the track, the guy in the front spun out, big accident. The guy, who was second, then went round uh, and won the rest of the race. And he was being interviewed afterwards. And the interviewer turned around to him and said, When you saw the the first guy spin out and have this terrible accident, did you slow down? And the guy said, no, I didn't slow down. He said, I accelerated because I knew that everybody else would slow down. And the point I'm trying to make is during a recession, lots of organizations will start to retrench and pull away from the customer. This is people's opportunity to put their foot down on the accelerator and spend more time with the customer and therefore create a gap between them and their competition so this means spending more time with them understanding them doing things to help them that don't necessarily pay you pay you money today because let's again be clear this is the time you want to retain your customers you Absolutely. don't want to lose them yeah and you don't want to lose a loyal customer because you started to, to uh, retrench. So looking at a customer, again, going back to numbers, you know looking at a customer from lifetime value. Okay, look at the lifetime value of the customer. Don't just look at the fact that the, the revenue from this customer will be X this year. And to your point about big data, there's a big hole in big data, and the big hole is people don't understand. Don't look at it from a behavioral perspective. So again, on our podcast, The Intuitive Customer, we talk about understanding customer behavior, understanding the biases that we have, understanding things like uh, prospect theory and loss aversion, and then being able to turn around and say, okay, well, look, this is actually what the data is showing us. It's not that. And going back to the conversation about the blinkers, you know, the danger is is you look at that data with blinkers on and you then miss out on the big takeaways that you have. So it's absolutely about keeping the customers that you've got today and talking to them, doing things for them, showing that that you are in a partnership and you're building that relationship with them. And then you'll be building customers for life. In in my my book, when you're in these times. This is the acid test. It's easy talking about this stuff when everyone's making money. You know, somebody once said to me, I thought what was a great phrase. When you're making money, everything's funny. It's not anymore. This is serious stuff now. And this is where relationships are truly built over a period of time.
0: I was interviewing Mark Schaefer, a brilliant marketeer. His book, Marketing Rebellion, is definitely worth a read for any of you who um, are interested. And uh, he was in Alcoa in his earlier career. And what was really interesting was when recession hit, there was one small customer of theirs that could have gone to much cheaper providers. But because in a previous recession, when times were tough, this startup business really needed help And Alcoa put their hand in their pocket and served them well. The father on his deathbed actually said, son, always stick with Alcoa. So when the recession hit, despite the fact they could go with someone else, they stuck with Alcoa. And that whole piece of account about account retention is really key. When you look at the stats on this, the figures vary, but anywhere between six to nine or 12 to 15 times more the cost of acquiring a new customer selling to an existing one. And because people have this transactional mindset, they're looking at the cost of the transaction uh, if they're looking at the cost of sale at all. And what they're not doing is they're not thinking about the lifetime value of that customer. And my pal Fraser Hay always says that what you should be investing is about a third of the lifetime value of the customer in marketing and acquiring them. If you make that kind of investment and you play the long game, then what you end up with is a balancing out. When times are tough, then your customers are not only well-disposed, but also well-positioned because you've helped them get onto a strong footing. And as a result, you don't incur the hidden cost of sale. Now, the three highest hidden costs in any business are wrong hires, That's the highest hidden cost. Mm -hmm. Then the hidden cost of sale and the hidden cost of RFPs. Now, if you don't have to faff around with RFPs and your sales cycle is significantly shorter with a much higher close rate because you're selling to your existing customers, you get to keep more profit. We're in business to make a profit. Sure. If, If all you're doing is looking at revenue, then you don't have a strong, sustainable business with a long lifespan. Uh, what you've got is something that's incredibly fragile and brittle.
1: I mean, the, the danger is, and one of the things that annoys me intensely is organizations look at things through too short-term a window. Mm. So the quarterly reporting to oh. the drives short-term decision-making, okay? And that kills, that kills businesses. I mean, one of the successes, in my view, of Amazon has been that they 've been customer focused they look at customers and the customer data you know they they 've got an incredible amount of data now on just on the behavior that we all show but you 've got to look at customers more from a what 's going to be like in you know five years' time with them rather than what's going to happen over the next six months because that 's where you as you exactly said you 'll start to gain more profit with them because Actually, they'll need less resources. They'll stay with you. You won't need to spend so much time in marketing, so on
0: and so forth. Which then brings me to the next piece, which I think is lack of attention. Attention is a currency. You pay attention. And I I think one of the problems that I see in many organizations is they transact and then they disappear. And they only come back for the odd drive-by shooting for renewals or when they're here to sell something else. So again, from the customer experience perspective, what are you advising your clients to do in terms of maintaining that ongoing conversation and uh, that ongoing mutual accountability between you as a vendor and them as a customer holding each other's feet to the flames?
1: Absolutely. So if you look again, as you rightly say, if you look at some of the models, you know, particularly, say, insurance, you know. The, you buy the insurance and then they don't. you don't hear from them and then, then suddenly it comes to renewal and they're, they're really interested in you again. So you've got to do it over a period of time. I think it's interesting with the subscription models and the sort of subscription economy that's starting to come up, you're starting to see a lot more people in what they're calling customer success, which I think is the right thing, which is effectively going you've got to to have a structured conversation with these customers for a a long period, over a period of time, and not just when it comes to renewal. So uh, we we are absolutely advising our customers to make sure that they're staying in contact with those customers and ideally building a relationship that's a more personal relationship with those customers. So it's the same person. And then you're going back into the whole conversations about CRM and making sure you're collecting the right data and giving people time to, I mean, just phoning a customer and going, hi, just want to see how you're doing. You know, what are the issues today? I'm not going to try and sell you anything. I'm just genuinely interested in how you are and, you know, is there there any issues? Just things like that, uh, which a lot of organizations would just see as a cost rather than, I I would even put that down as marketing, you know? Don't spend so much money on advertising, just get people to, to phone them. I, I mean, I think you know, um, you've heard of Zappos in the States. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah? Zappos say that the telephone is their biggest marketing tool. So they don't have restrictions on how long an agent would be speaking to the customer because that's where you're building the relationship, that's where you're building that bond.
0: One of the things I teach my clients, well, a couple of things in terms of the process, is that when you make the initial sale as a mandatory part of the relationship is that you have quarterly reviews. And they're quarterly value reviews instead of quarterly business reviews. So it's not turning up to flog them something else. A quarterly value review is based on client-centric satisfaction so you put, yourself, you put yourself in a vulnerable position where you invite the customer to identify the things that, they, that are important to them, and they will measure you against. And each quarter, you go and you establish whether or not uh, you have met or exceeded their expectations. Yep. Between times, uh, I teach my clients to do something called a recon call. And recon is a, uh, an agenda or a framework. It stands for remember evaluate changed opportunities and next steps. Remind me what we agreed to talk about between now and the last time we spoke, or remind me what we agreed to do. Evaluate us, and I'm interested in the negative feedback. Tell me what promises we haven't kept, any expectations we haven't achieved, anything that you're not happy with. So you're inviting that negative feedback so that you can do something about it. So the next time you go back for a remember, then hopefully you've done something to improve it, which brings us to the C, which is changed. What has changed for the better? What surprised you? What's improved? What value have we delivered? Where are the opportunities for us to help you more over the next 90, 120 uh, days? And what are the next steps that you want to execute and you want us to take? And the net result yep. of that is that always deepening the relationship and building trust based on behavior, because yep. talk is cheap. And yep. in, the, in this world, in this economy in particular, you need to be somebody who actually lives up to your word. And you don't need written contracts when you're actually somebody that they trust. It's a good idea to have them, don't get me wrong, but what people are expecting is sure. that you are somebody who makes promises that you keep. Sure. And that's very rare. Yes. In age.
1: Yes, it's, it's too rare, unfortunately. I always find it funny, actually, because you know when we're dealing with clients, they obviously say to us, could you sign an NDA? And we go, yeah, sure. And the interesting part is we don't do anything different with customers that we sign NDAs with and customers we haven't signed NDAs, because it's just about the way that you you deal with someone.
0: So tell me this. I'm really interested in the whole recruitment piece as well, because mm. getting the right people on board sure is critical. When you're advising your clients, how are you advising them to look for people who are genuinely customer-centric? What sure. are the qualities that make up somebody who yep. lives and breathes that philosophy?
1: Yeah, good question. My second from last book was called... Um, Happy people give you, or happy employees give you happy customers. So let's go back to the principle that we talked about before. So if we took Merck line, which is they want customers to feel trust, cared for, and pleased, okay? So again, this is why I don't, I don't, part of it I just don't see it as being rocket science, but apparently it is. So guess what? You need to employ people who are good at making people trust them feel cared for, and feel pleased. So if you take First Direct in the UK, First Direct have always been one of the leading banks and leading organizations for having a good experience. They will only employ people from the caring industries. So they don't employ people from financial services because financial services people have blinkers and therefore they would employ teachers and care workers and so on and so forth because they've got that inherent ability to deal with customers it goes back to your word empathy so one of the things again practical stuff that i would be looking at doing is once you've defined your experience then you can start to look at emotional intelligence and literally giving Candidates attest on their level of emotional intelligence, because a higher level of emotional intelligence when dealing with customers will absolutely help. I mean, I'll give you a, a, one of my favorite stories is I've got a really good friend called Stuart. And Stuart is the life and soul of the party. OK, but you can't trust the word the bloke says. Okay, <laughs> It is the life and soul of the party, but he just exaggerates everything. OK? So you just have to ignore that. So if you're trying to employ somebody that's good at trust, don't employ Stuart. If you're trying to create an experience that's fun, employ Stuart. So it's aligning that what the experience is that we're trying to give our customers and the type of people that we therefore need to, to recruit, because that will give us the best chance to deliver that experience automatically without having to for the organization and this goes back to your point earlier about culture from a cultural perspective because it's naturally cultured the natural culture then is you're full of people that are are trying to do trust cared for and
0: pleased well this is really interesting because when you look at most job descriptions most recruitment processes they look at three things skills Historical experience, historical results, which are the worst indicators of future success in a role. And what people fail to do is recruit for leading indicators. And this is, again, because of blinkers and tradition, because that's what's always been done. And typically, it's cut and paste the previous job description, maybe tweak it a little bit. And what they don't do is they don't spend time talking to people who are in the role to find out what they actually do every day and uh, looking at things like their habits, their cognitive abilities, their attitudes, their beliefs, their values. And so what you tend to see then is people recruiting the wrong type of people. They fail in roles. So then you end up with this revolving door, which then creates the uh, distrust with the customer because they're seeing the people who are dealing with them change time and again. And I was speaking to Tamara McMillan who is the senior VP for Virgin Media. And what was really interesting was she was saying that it takes three years for somebody to actually settle, really settle into their role. Now, if you're churning people every 12 to 24 months, you're never going to get people who are operating at peak performance. So the experience the customer receives is terrible.
1: Yes, and it's obviously not good for the organization and everything else. And when you were just saying that, I mean, if, if you think of the average tenure of a CMO, uh, chief Marketing Officer. It's probably eighteen months or something like that before they're they're replaced, which then has a knock on effect throughout the whole of the whole of the organisation.
0: I think what's going to be really interesting is how the dynamic of where chief executives come from. I think is going to change. It's no longer going to be the CFO and VP of Sales. I think it's going to be the VP of Customer Experience. I think it's going to be the head of data analytics, and I think it's going to be the, part, uh, the channel chief, because those are the three people who have that massive view of the entire organization and the customer ecosystem. And in all cases, the good ones are people-centric, and they are focused on looking for the real insight that tells you how people actually behave in the real world. And I think that the day of the CFO and the VP of sales being chief executive, I hope is numbered. What are your thoughts?
1: The bit I would expand on would be that I totally agree, but you're not going to find, if I was putting a number on it, I would say 60% of organizations aren't like that. But I think during this pandemic, there's going to be a clear out, basically. So, you know, as you rightly said, when furlough comes off and, you know, we start to hit the winter and everything else, and we're in big recession stroke depression, I think that's going to have a a massive effect on organizations. And the more customer-centric those organizations are, the more they will benefit. If you think about, I heard a a really good guy um, on our podcast a couple of weeks ago called Rory Sutherland. I don't know if you know Rory Sutherland.
0: I do know Rory
1: Yeah, well, I
0: don't know him personally, but he's he's one of the people I want to get on.
1: Yeah, no, he's a really really good guy. My my son's in advertising, and calls him a legend. But one of the things that Rory said to me was that businesses have promoted efficiency over resilience. Yeah. So I always look at life sort of from a pendulum point of view, and the pendulum has swung so far to efficiency that what we have seen. Is a lack of resilience in the supply chains and everything. And if I look at, well, who's who's driving that? It's the CFO to get more and more money, more and more money. Well, yeah, that's right. And you need efficiencies. And I'm not talking about not having global supply chains, but you also need resilience. You know, and without that resilience, again, that starts to affect the business. So I think that what you're going to start to see is organisations start to learn that
0: lesson and start to build in more resilience with their customers as well crucially important point tell me what are you struggling with what are you wrestling with at the moment the things i I think it's probably just the same as everybody else it's um we used to travel
1: a lot and traveling a lot is not something we do now so we've done a lot of um we've been working this way from a working from home perspective for some time, so video and all that type of stuff is, is fine. But I, I think, if I'm honest, the thing that I'm struggling with is trying to sort the week from the chat. And what I mean by that is trying to sort out the clients who are really serious about treating the pandemic as an opportunity and those that aren't, because I only want to work with the ones that are. That treat it as an opportunity. So I definitely think that this is a time of opportunity. You know, there's the phrase I love, which is "never let a good crisis go to waste." Absolutely. I'm talking to a lot of clients, and some of them, I have to say, aren't really serious, and they're not going to put the money where their mouth is. And I want to sort of sort that wheat from the chaff to go. This is where I think that we're going to place our bets on. And work with these clients because these are going to be the ones that are going to be successful moving forward.
0: Are you leading with the objections that are likely to be the triggers that will cause the ones who aren't serious to say, "No, nah, not for me"?
1: One of the reasons
0: why we called
1: the podcast "The Intuitive Customer" is because people make decisions intuitively. Okay, you can go into an organisation. I'm sure that you're the same, Marcus. And you can tell from just asking a few key questions, what's the smell of the place? What what do they really think? What are some of the words that they're using to describe things? So you can tell intuitively whether an organization is serious or not. And you can get down to starting to go, well, therefore, I think we need to do this. If they go, yeah, well, we'll talk about that and come back to you in a couple of months' time, you're not bloody serious. So if, you know, if we need to do this, yes, okay, we'll do it. And what's the next step? And then what's the next step? Then you start to get a sense that they are much more serious about it. But as usual, there's going to be a clear out. There's going to be a clear out of the companies that, that are not customer focused. And gradually, COVID is, is an accelerant. And I think what you're going to see is you're going to see organizations that are more focused on the customer accelerating in in their ability to um, to grow and increase profits and stuff like that.
0: COVID has highlighted weakness. It hasn't created it. Yep. And yep. to build on the point you were making, I think the key is to go for the no rather than trying to get people to say yes. Encourage people to disqualify you out quickly. Yep. Early win is like saving a goal. and um, yep. on goal differently. Okay, tell me, what what are you being influenced by in terms of what you're reading, watching, listening to that you think other people should really pay heed to?
1: I tend not to read stuff that's in my industry. And I do that purposely because I don't think, otherwise it just becomes a sounding board for everyone's advice. A few things that I, we absolutely focus on this behavioral stuff. There's a guy called... um, Professor Daniel Kahneman.
0: Kahneman,
1: yeah. So Professor Daniel Kahneman, he's wrote written a really good book called Thinking Fast and Slow, done a number of TED Talks. Dan Ariely is another good good guy to listen to. And just coming at it from an understanding human behavior. So the way I look at all this stuff is understand human behavior. And if you understand human behavior, now I can put it in the context of this is what it means for a customer experience. This is what it means for marketing. This is what it means from, um, from a sales perspective. So, you know, effectively applying those theories to each of those areas. And lastly, the whole subject that's fascinating me at the moment is the whole subject about memory, because memories are absolutely vital and form us, and how memories are formed is really fascinating, but that's a completely another subject.
0: No, well, absolutely fascinating. And actually, memories often frame how we make decisions. So it's a really important area. If you're in sales or marketing or in management, really important that you do understand how memory works and how people create and fabricate memory, because that can massively impact the, the decisions people make. Very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Okay, so final question then. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and whisper in the idiot Colin's ear at age 23. What advice would you whisper in his ear to prevent a lifetime of misery and self sabotage
1: <laughs> <laughs> So, the advice I would give Colin at that stage was don't think about what your next job is, think about what your job, two or three jobs from then, is. So, you know, my kids. Because my kids are sort of thirty, I've got three of them around the age of all around the age of thirty. They get annoyed when I say to them, "So, what are you planning to do in ten years' time?" When I was twenty-three, I didn't have a plan, and what I realised was you got to have a plan because it goes back to that um, Alice in Wonderland talking to the Mad Hatter, which is you know uh, you come to a fork in the road, and Alice says to the Mad Hatter, "Which road should I take?" And she and he says, well, it depends where you're trying to get to, because any road will take you there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so
1: you've got to have a plan of where you're trying to trying to get to. And again, you, surprisingly, too often, people don't.
0: If you don't have a plan, you will become part of someone else's. And then you have no room for complaint later. Correct. Uh, it's not the plan so much that matters, but the planning. Yes. Um, because the reality is life will destroy your plan. And the minute you've written it, it's already out of date. But you need to go through that planning process. And you need to have an idea of the trajectory you want to follow and recognize that it will not be a straight path. Odds are you know, millennials are going to go through something like 12 different career changes um, sure. throughout their working life. So if you screw up now, it's not the end of the world. And you know, learn to adapt. So great advice. So Colin, how can people get hold of you?
1: Best way is either through LinkedIn. Obviously, it's uh, Colin Shaw on LinkedIn or go to our website, which is www.beyondphilosophy.com. How do people listen to your podcast? So it's the intuitive customer and you can get the podcast from anywhere. Go to our website or just you know anywhere where you'd normally get your podcast
0: from. Brilliant. Colin Shaw, thank you so much. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think you would be a great guest or you know somebody who would be a great guest, then please email me at mcauchi at sandler.com. In the meantime, stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.